The following Bloodstream Media podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Speak to your healthcare provider about all medical and treatment decisions. Cheat Codes listeners, producer Patrick here. Cheat Codes is coming up right now, but wanted to give you a quick heads up. There are some times in the episode where there's a bit of weird background noise or music. We had some issues when recording a couple of the segments. Nothing that should be too distracting, but I did just want to give you that heads up so you didn't think you were crazy if you were hearing a little something in the background at times. So please enjoy Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast from doctors Mike and Amar. Hello, Warriors, and welcome back to Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Nice to have you back, Dr. C. We've got a good episode today. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. So we'll start with what's buzzing on social media, and today I'm going to get fired up. I'm going to give you a warning right now. Getting mad at the New York Times. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'll hit our Warriors with the word of the day. We have a really, really interesting interview guest today, and I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. So, so we're going to talk to the CEO of Emmaus Life Sciences, the makers of Andari. Dr. Nahara. Dr. Yutaka Nahara, exactly. And then we'll have Dr. Callahan finish up with uh, really diving into um, a landmark trial that's going to change the way sickle cell disease is being treated. Right, so we're going to talk about the trial that got Andari approved. And so sticking with the Star Wars theme, instead of the moon of Endor, this is the moon of Endari. I love it. All right, guys, we're so happy that you're back with us for another episode of Cheat Codes. All right, Dr. Z, it's that time again. It's time for what's happening now in social media. So what? Uh, where are we going to today? Are we going to uh, Twitter or Snapchat or Facebook? Actually, we're, we're going to the New York Times. Wait, and what? NewYorkTimes.com? We are. We're going to NYTimes.com. And I apologize in advance. I might get fired up. That doesn't happen very typically with me. I usually don't get that fired up. This one might set me off the edge. So in December, just after Ash, around Ash, at the tail end of Ash, an article comes out on NYTimes.com. I remember this. You remember this? And I remember this because I'm sitting there with Katerina Minetti from, from um, Albert Minetti. Einstein, Dr. From Minetti. New York City. Oh, yeah. Great, great adult doctor. Pediatric doctor turned adult doctor. Um, and she taps me on the shoulder and she says, Amar, did you see this? And I'm, I'm sitting there. We were at the president's reception at Ash and we're literally, I'm like looking at this article and I can feel like my blood pressure climbing as I'm reading it. So the title is two new drugs help relieve sickle cell disease period, but who will pay question mark. So they didn't answer that question. They they did, um, but but not well. So this is by a lady named Gina Colada, and the reason that I tell you that is because you don't like Gina Coladas. No, <laughs> I like Gina Coladas, but uh, Gina Colada, we had to reach out to over and over and over again um, to let her know that we weren't happy. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to read some quotes to you out of this. And I want to I gauge you. I know you've already read this, but I want to make those feelings fresh again. So at one point, Ms. Collada says that each treatment is priced around $100,000 a year and must be taken for life. 
While it's not uncommon for a drug treating a rare disease to carry a high price, there are 100,000 people with sickle cell disease in the United States and millions more worldwide. To me, that sounds like she's saying it's a rare disease, but that's too many people with a rare disease for us to pay for this, is how I read that. Yeah, and I, I remember looking at this, and I, I wanted to see how many drugs cost $100,000. And I found an article with the 100 highest cost drugs, and they were all more than that. So Absolutely. You know, $100,000 is a lot of money, but uh, a lot of drugs cost in that range. So then she interviews a few doctors, colleagues of ours who I'm not familiar with uh, because we have not crossed paths. One of the physicians that was interviewed says, drug companies want us to ask this question. What are we willing to pay to ease the pain and the challenge of living with sickle cell disease? When it's your child facing the disease or your friend in unbearable pain, the answer is anything. But that's the wrong way to approach pricing. And the more appropriate question is, what amount should drug companies make on these drugs? Medicaid covers 50% of patients with sickle cell. Medicare covers another 15%. It's not clear how these programs will afford to pay for these drugs. I um, I have a lot of feelings about that statement, but I want to hear yours first. Yeah, I, you know, I, I understand money is not infinite and uh, we can't just pay anything, any price for anything. Um, but I think there are a lot of drugs that cost in this price range. I think um, our sickle cell warriors haven't had any options. And um, I, I think to have a company come into a, a space like Sickle Cell where there's, there's a, a cemetery full of drugs that have failed in clinical trials and take a risk and um, put in the, the resources to try to get a drug to market, um, if, if they do have success there, they need to recoup their costs. Absolutely. They need, they need to... Um, to be successful there. Absolutely. Um, if nothing else, to encourage more people to come in the space that's and, right. and make new drugs that, that can help our that's, patients. That's right. And honestly, Dr. Mike, I I can say to you that in the three, we, we've both worked with all three companies. They really do invest back into the sickle cell community. I it's, mean, it's early days. Let's keep their feet to the fire. But so yeah, far, so, so we got to keep pushing them on that, right? But, but I mean, they have invested themselves in this community, and I think the patients feel that too. Um, and to me, that that that's huge. Actually, I, I want these companies to come into this space, new companies, be successful, invest in this community, help them build an infrastructure, give them resources that they otherwise won't get. I mean, without these companies there, where were the awareness programs? Where were the spotlights? Where were where were the news articles? I mean, none of this was happening, right? And and I don't think you see New York Times articles like this um, in a lot of other disease states. I mean, to their credit, they do uh, occasionally have stories like this um, for other drugs, but often they cost multiple times what what these drugs cost. That's fair. Um, and and it seems. Uh, you know, a, a little unfair to single out Agreed. new drugs in sickle cell uh, and ones that, that aren't even on the high end um, com compared to some other drugs Agreed. Uh, for this kind of scrutiny and, and uh, consideration. Exactly. And, I, you know, I, I always try to do what's best for my patient, and I don't take consideration of these costs. That's right. Somebody has to. 
um, that the insurance us. companies um, have to negotiate with the drug companies. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, to me, that's, you know, fake money being shuffled around from one company I don't care about to some other company I don't care about. What I do care about is that my patient has That's access right. to these drugs. Absolutely. And so it's it's frustrating when you get press like this that that might limit that. So now the next controversial statement that comes up in this article is hydroxyurea, approved in 1998, costs about $1,000 a year and is approved for children. It can reduce the incidence of pain crises and strokes by half. Facts. This is true. We know this is true. Hydroxyurea is a great drug. Nobody's saying to replace hydroxyurea. We're not trying to get people off hydroxyurea. It is a great drug. But then they say, yet only 30% of sickle cell patients take it. So, they say in this article, should sickle cell patients be required to be on hydroxyurea before moving on to the newer, pricier treatment? Will insurance companies want to at least attempt treatment with hydroxyurea? Why should they jump to a very expensive drug as first-line therapy? Yeah, so I, I, you know, this is a great frustration when you have payers making decisions for patients and, and doctors, and they're saying, you know, this is required and you should do this first. I, I think hydroxyurea is a great drug for most people. That's probably true. You should probably be on hydroxyurea. And we that offer hydroxyurea to everybody. Your, that should probably be your first choice. Um, not because it's cheap. It's cheap and that and that's great, but uh, but because it works it and works. it can help you. That's right. Um, but these aren't necessarily an or. These are often an and. So people on hydroxyurea are still having pain, um, still having unmet needs. And so you can add these on top of it. In addition, some people don't tolerate hydroxyurea. It's a safe drug, but some people don't tolerate it. And, you know, a lot of our warriors have concerns about hydroxyurea. Sure. I spend most of my day telling them those are unfounded. Yeah. But uh, I, I think, you know, we're not going to convince everybody. And, and if people have those strongly held beliefs, we shouldn't be withholding these things that might help them because they're never going to take hydroxyurea. I, I think that's uh, unfair and unreasonable. Correct. And, and we talked about hydroxyurea in depth in episode two. Um, so, so you guys can refer back to that if you, if you want to hear a little bit more about it. Um, you know, the, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that, that it's ludicrous to say that this is an or therapy. That's a really good way to put it. This is an and. These are and therapies. Um, and, you know, a lot of our warriors have genotypes that don't get hydroxyurea. That's right. That hydroxyurea is for people with SS or S-beta-0. Our warriors with SC, S-beta plus, other right. uh, variants. And when we, cut uh, our, not... when we cut our own experience, like our clinic with 700 patients, if we cut them down to how many of them are SS, S-beta-0, it, it really excludes quite a, quite a number of people. Um, so, so th I think that that's a very important consideration that gets forgotten. I mean, I've had these conversations with payers where they, um, during prior authorizations, where they say, well, we're not going to give you Endari because this patient hasn't been on hydroxyurea. And I have to say, well, this patient has hemoglobin SC, um, so I'm, I'm not going to put them on hydroxyurea. Um, but those types of conversations are a big source of frustration. Now, one, one more uh, item I want to go over here with you. Um, one of the physicians interviewed for this New York Times article 
says, Many adults with sickle cell disease have subtle or overt brain damage, which makes it difficult for them to fully understand, plan, or adhere to treatment. Sounds like some physicians at the New York Times interview have some subtle brain damage that... (laughs) I I mean, I read that statement, and I can't even believe that that made it to print. That is unbelievable. I, I don't... I can't think of another disease space that gets scrutinized like this. The patients are being... I mean, this is literally insulting and trolling the patients i can see your face getting red again dr zady i honestly i'm this i read this and i was just like i these guys have lost all credibility um so i i want to read a little passage to you of what i responded on my on my linkedin is that okay all right now we're back to social media so here's what i wrote dr mike i wrote Despite all the noise and nonsense, I will celebrate Oxbrite and Adakvio. I will celebrate that after a century, our forgotten and mistreated and stigmatized sickle cell patients have a shot at combination therapy. I will celebrate drugs that increase hemoglobin and reduce pain. And I will celebrate the companies who are in the community generating awareness and advocacy. I will celebrate not the sales of the drugs, but the currency of hope and possibilities. Right, which is all this is for this population. I mean, this is a new, it's a, it's a whole new world. Right? This is uh, just a new terrain for them. So I made it clear that the New York Times is not where I go to get told how to feel about scientific advances because quite frankly, they aren't in, they aren't in the trenches fighting day in and day out like we are. Right? They don't deal with the disease. So while we know the six-digit price point, we also see the cost of missed opportunities and you know, all the missed events. We see the cost of the stigma and the discrimination in the medical system. We see the cost of pain-related complications and organ damage. It's so much deeper than a wallet. It's pos- This is generating possibilities for a disenfranchised group. So don't mind me while I celebrate that after 100 years of darkness, we have a glimmer of hope. And that's the only currency that ever matters is hope. And that's that's how I felt in that moment. I know that that might be a little bit of an emotional and uh, unreasonable response, but that's truly... I think it's perfectly reasonable. If I was on the LinkedIn, I would click the heart or the thumbs up. (laughs) We have to get you on the LinkedIn, man. That's not okay. (laughs) All right. That is all I have for you today, Dr. Mike. Thanks, Dr. Z. Okay, Warriors. Back with my favorite segment, the Warrior Word of the Day. Dr. Mike, the word of the day is important today. Well, the word is not important, but it is an important word. (laughs) Um, This is really what affects sickle cell disease patients' lives maybe the most day to day. I, I think that this is probably the thing that keeps us busiest in regards to our patients day to day. Um, this is what brings their life to a screeching halt and, um, mostly lands them in the hospital. So we're talking about pain. We're talking about pain and the term that we're going to be talking about more specifically is vaso-occlusive crises or vaso-occlusive 
episode, depending on who you ask. Let's talk about that. All right. So we got at least four words of the day. Um, <laughs> so vaso-occlusive crisis or vaso-occlusive episode. Um, these are sort of broad terms that um, point to the underlying problem that's going on in, in sickle cell disease where you have um, red blood cells blocking blood vessels. Um, so vaso is for the blood vessel and occlusion is for blocking. So you have vaso-occlusion. And uh, some people like the term crisis. Um, some people say they're not all a crisis, so we should call them episodes, but I think sure. we mean the same thing. And some of them cause pain, so we might say a VOC that is a pain episode. But there are other kinds of VOC. You can have vaso-occlusion that's causing priapism or an sure. erection that won't go away or um, that's blocking up the spleen and you can have splenic sequestration. Sure. You could have it in the abdomen and have an abdominal uh, occlusive crisis. Um, and these are usually acute. So there are things that happen um, all of the sudden. So yeah. you may have chronic pain and some of that may be um, related to vaso-occlusion, but usually it's other things going on. But the acute pain, the pain that comes on all of the sudden is really intense. Um, that's usually from vaso-occlusion. Okay. And so when you have that vaso-occlusion and the blood vessels are getting blocked, the blood doesn't flow past the occlusion and you can't get oxygen delivered to the tissue. And then what happens is what we call ischemic injury Yeah, is when the blood gets all blocked up, you have that vaso-occlusion and the blood cells aren't getting past it, they can't get past the blockage, so they can't deliver the oxygen to the tissues past the blockage. So ischemia really is describing um, a lack of oxygen. A lack of oxygen, okay. which is usually because of the lack of blood flow to that area. Okay. And so then the tissue starts to die, and that causes inflammation and pain and sure. uh, damages the tissue. And if it's a muscle or a bone, um, you'll get a, a pain in that area. If it's a kidney, you have, in addition, you have damage to the kidney. Or sure. If it's um, another organ, you have damage to that organ. So the vaso-occlusive crisis leads to this ischemic injury and, and damage. And um, we use different definitions for this. So a lot of times in clinical trials and drug studies, when we're trying to see if a, if a drug works, um, we'll look to see if it can prevent vaso-occlusive episodes or vaso-occlusive crises. That's right. And so we'll say uh, the VOCs on the drug were four and the VOCs on the placebo were two, so the drug worked. So the in order way. to do that... The other way around. Yeah, hopefully not that. <laughs> yeah, that that'd be a bad drug. drug. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a bad drug. It was causing pain. In that case, we use a, a specific definition. We have to say you know, when something is a, a VOC and when it's not. And so people use different uh, different definitions. They right. might say it has to last for two hours or it has to last for four hours. Or, or you have to, have to come to the ER or be or admitted be, exactly, or something like that. Exactly. Um, so I, I think those definitions are important for s trials, for studies, because we, we need to be accurate about things. Um, but they're not so important in the clinic. If you're having pain at home, if it's not severe enough to go to the emergency department, if it doesn't last for two hours, you're still having pain. It's still a significant issue. Absolutely. Um, so I think we need to capture that too. And our friend and colleague, Dr. Wally Smith, 
eloquently described that the majority of these issues, particularly as it relates to pain, really do happen at home. Yeah, with his Pisces study, he's captured a whole lot of uh, patient diaries from home and looked at how people are managing their pain and right. how it's affecting them. And we do see you know, the vast majority of pain doesn't come to medical attention. Exactly. Um, a lot of these VOCs are happening at home. Right. And I think that's a key point that you really can be having VOCs that happen in your home. Um, and up to this point, really, clinical trials largely exclude those from sort of being measured. Yeah, I, I think it's always been a challenge to measure things at home. Um, I think we're getting a little bit better at it. And I think the using the pain episodes that go to the hospital has been attractive to the companies because there's 197,000 emergency room visits for VOCs. That's almost two per patient per year. Um, huge, so it's it's huge. a very common thing, and it's a huge problem. Absolutely. Um, and if, if you can help with that, presumably you would be helping with the things at home. But uh, I think we do need to keep track of what's going on at home and, and do a good job about addressing those too because some people don't like to come to the hospital even though they're having a lot of pain um, and and sometimes you're not having terrible pain that needs to go to the hospital but it's still affecting your life absolutely absolutely all right warriors there it is word of the day voc or voe i'm really excited today because we have a special guest who accepted to do an interview with us on the Cheat Codes podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Yutaka Nihara. And Dr. Nihara has been involved in patient care and research for sickle cell disease for, for most of his career, uh, several decades. He's the principal inventor of the drug we're talking about in this episode, which is uh, the patented L-glutamine therapy, which is now FDA approved for the treatment of sickle cell patients. He's the co-founder of Emmaus Principal Investigator for LA Biomed at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and Professor Emeritus of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He has a vast experience with L-glutamine. In fact, he's the one who brought it to market and worked very hard to do so. And today we'll talk about his and the company's road to FDA approval for L-glutamine and what he wants patients to know about this therapy. Hi, Dr. Nihara. Hello, uh, Dr. Zaibi. It is such a pleasure to have you on our uh, podcast with me and Dr. Mike here. Hi, Dr. Nihara. Hi, Dr. Mike Callahan. Um, so, 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 Dr. Nihara, you have been quite busy over the last, uh, re really over the last three years, but you, you've been busy in this space for quite a long time. I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the sickle cell disease space in, in the first place? Well, just like both of you, uh, during my training for hematology oncology, you know, I was quite fascinated with uh, sickle cell disease. Fascinated may not be the right word, but I was really uh, taken by the severity and devastation that patients will go through. And uh, my attention was uh, shifted more and more towards sickle cell from uh, 
solid and hematological tumor. Although, you know, I did <laughs> do my training in uh, hematology and oncology, and I did not really slack off on the <laughs> oncology part, but sure. I was quite uh, interested in this disease. And the other thing that really scared me was that many of the patients were really written off as drug seeker. I cannot really blame other doctors because uh, when I first saw sickle cell patients, uh, that's how I thought they were too because of the enormous amount of pain medication that they required. But as I, as I got to know them more and more, you know, this thing is real. And Absolutely. I'm talking about 1989 to 1992. Uh, in those days, we didn't even have a hydroxyurea. Right. We really felt like uh, you know we have to do something for this. Not that I didn't think I could do too much for them, except to you know treat each patient uh, with the best I can. But uh, there had to be something that had to be done. So anyway, that's how I got started with the sickle cell disease. You're right. There, there's a lot to accomplish, and um, there's there's a there's a long road ahead of us. But you you guys have really put a flag on the map um, with Andari. That's really nice of you to say that. Uh, you know, but um, uh, we were just uh, taking things uh, one day at a time, just like you do. I was just fortunate to join the laboratory that was doing a lot of. Um, uh, work on red blood cells and the sickle cell disease was one of the topics and um, you know I was able to um, pursue this uh, not knowing what it, where it might really lead uh, but everything that I was doing was interesting on daily basis so you know we kept doing it so uh, you know it's like I'm really glad you say that but it's accumulation of days work sure sure so I, I took the I took the liberty of going into uh, PubMed and going through your publications, and I see, um, at least from this, that your scholarly activity in L-glutamine looks like it started in 2005. But tell me the story of how L-glutamine became uh, came to the forefront for you. My first publication was like in 1994 uh, with the glutamine. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Our laboratory was working on the um, uh, pentose phosphate shunt because uh, we really wanted to um, tackle this uh, hyperoxidative state uh, in red blood cells uh, caused by this sickle cell mutation. And uh, not just us, but many people felt that uh, if we can somehow reduce this uh, oxygen stress, uh, we could reduce the injury to red blood cells. And uh, our laboratory focused on this uh, pentose phosphate shunt because we knew that uh, that was a direct uh, reduction mechanism for the oxidized hemoglobin. Uh, I'm talking about the G6PD going down to NAD, going down to cytochrome, which passes the electron over to the uh, hemoglobin. When we looked at that, uh, we noticed that uh, there were some issues with the NAD. Uh, NAD is, as you know, is a nucleotide. Uh, it's very much like a nucleotide in DNA, but uh, it's a little bit different in that it has a nitrate group. Uh, and then this is uh, actually uh, utilized in many, many um, um, areas uh, in Krebs cycle or in the glycolytic pathway. Sorry for getting a little uh, technical here. We noticed immediately that the NAD was uh, being used up so quickly 
And we also noticed that red blood cells trying to produce more NAD. And this work was primarily done by Dr. Zerez, my mentor. And then uh, we were trying to look at the way to improve this uh, NAD activity because uh, it was just getting used up so quickly. And we have noticed that it's not that it cannot produce more NAD, but you know, because it's utilized so quickly, its precursors were just being used up. And the precursor happens to be glutamine. Uh, you know, to get to that point, uh, you know, we had to do many different assays to, uh, you know, really pinpoint that it was glutamine. So one of my first uh, work was to see what the activity or the transport of glutamine into red cell was like. And uh, we have noticed that uh, sickle red blood cell had like almost 10 times faster uptake of glutamine through active uh, transport compared to um, what we call... Uh, high reticulocyte control. I see. Where is this going? So we did a few other studies, and sure enough, uh, glutamine was utilized to form more NAD. And uh, one of the um, hallmark of our laboratory was uh, NAD redox potential because this NAD redox potential was uh, really coined by Dr. Um, Zerez, and uh, you know we, we, we knew how to uh, measure NAD redox potential. And... Uh, before uh, application of glutamine uh, into these red cells, NAD redox potential was really, really low, meaning like uh, it was uh, use, uh, you know, its capacity to uh, counteract the oxidant stress was really low. But then once we added glutamine, uh, NAD level went up and uh, NAD redox potential went up very nicely to uh, adequately counteract this oxidant stress. Uh, so this was uh, uh, my work in uh, mostly 1990s, and then um, uh, you know uh, some of the laboratory work, and we hypothesized, and uh, we had pilot studies uh, in uh, mid uh, to late 90s, um, and actually gave glutamine to patients, uh, you know, pharmaceutical grade glutamine, and the patients started to feel so much better. Patients who used to get hospitalized uh, every week or every other week. All of a sudden, they didn't have to go to the emergency room for narcotics at all. So, wow. uh, and we monitored them for three months, and the, these were just four of my most severe patients. I said, "Wow, we have something," and we started to see improvement in their blood smears, and their blood cells were less uh, sticky. Uh, so, I just put these uh, information together, and the National Institutes of Health uh, gave us a grant, and that was my first uh, national level grant, and then. Uh, that was followed by um, open drug uh, grants from FDA. Throughout uh, the FDA and NIH gave me a lot of good advice. You know, I used to call them or visit them all the time. How do I go from here and so forth? You know, I was quite naive and then they were quite helpful. That's how we got to the phase two clinical trial and the phase three. Yeah. Wow. So when when did you decide to uh, jump in with two feet? And because one thing I really like about my job is I'm able to do research, you know, not not as impressive as this kind of research, but uh, you hope that that can make a big difference for a lot of people. But I also like the retail seeing individual patients and working with them. When did you decide to jump full into the research and, and really try to move it into clinical trials and patients and, and out into industry so that patients would have access to this? Okay, Dr. Mike, that's a good question. Um, you know, up till like uh, late um, uh, 1990s, uh, of course, we were mostly uh, 
basic scientist and uh, you know we did few things to uh, endorse the fact that glutamine is clinically efficacious but then uh, at that point I'm also a clinician too uh, we have to do something for the patient and it's glutamine after all the FDA had counseled us and told us that you know if you're going to pursue you really should uh, stick to the pharmaceutical grade glutamine because uh, you know health food grade can be irregular and uh, you know they don't get monitored as much and it could cause some toxicity so we stuck to this um, and uh, I just wanted to bring this to patients as quickly as possible. So first thing I did actually was to um, look for industry. But uh, year 2000, no industry was interested in uh, orphan disease and uh, especially sickle cell disease. So, you know, I, I, I could get nowhere. So then, um, you know, uh, just to get more uh, grant in a form of business, small business grant, um, uh, at the time, our laboratory or the institute was called uh, LA Biomed uh, at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Uh, they uh, encouraged me to uh, start up a paper company, virtual company, so that we can get a small business grant. And with that small business grant uh, and also the orphan drug grant uh, by the uh, FDA, uh, we had enough money to get the clinical trial started. So, um, you know, those, um, you know, like a little over a million dollars, and that doesn't sound a lot, but uh, that was a lot of money to me, and I was so naive that uh, that sure. didn't get us anywhere. Uh, but the thing is that we just got started, and then uh, for some reason, uh, you know, once we got started, we couldn't stop. So I just went around my family and friends and friends of friends, and then uh, we gathered enough uh, investment to um, finish the phase two trial. Um, and uh, once we finished phase two, then we had to go to phase three. And by, you know, phase two data was, uh, you know, good enough that we can move on to phase three. Um, and uh, even in phase two, we had a statistical significant decrease in hospitalization and stuff. We missed uh, statistical significance just by a little bit on the uh, instance of crisis. Uh, but that was good. Uh, we talked with the FDA and uh, we so like I uh, worked out the statistical analysis plan and uh, we worked on the uh, power and, you know, they're very nice about it, especially sure. the Office of Orphan Drug Designation. And then we moved on to a phase three trial that was in 2009. As you know, uh, by 2014, we finished the study uh, and we finished with 2030 patients. And uh, the data was uh, published in the paper that you saw. Right, right. In the New England Journal of Medicine. You know, your story is remarkable uh, for, for many reasons, but I, I, I really get inspired by your persistence and perseverance to follow through on this idea. I mean, really, this is like a almost 30-year arc now. Um, so that that's a, that's a really important lesson to people, I think, in, you know, really believing in ideas that you think are important. Um, so so th thank you for that inspiration. Yeah, it's not such a grand uh, thing that I did. I mean, well, I I was uh, so naive that I could get my work done in maybe five to seven years. It just took longer than uh, I had expected. If I knew that uh, it was going to take uh, essentially, uh, uh, like you said, like um, altogether maybe well, since 1992, so it's like 28 years, I probably didn't have courage to do it. But, uh, you know, the patients uh, who supported us and the investors who supported us and 
many clinicians who gave me encouragements. Uh, these were the reasons why I could continue. And uh, yeah, we were really happy when we could, uh, you know, show to the world that uh, we have now new treatment. We believe that it's uh, effective, safe, and uh, in a way practical. Wonderful, wonderful. So we, we, um, the last question I have for you, Dr. Nihara, is, you know, we obviously um, in our clinic have discussions about Andari in, you know, multiple patient rooms almost every day. What I think is really interesting is, you know, with your clinician uh, background, how would you um, explain Andari to a patient who's hearing about it for the first time? Thank you for asking me this question and um, always discussing Andari um, as a part of your discussion, Dr. Zidi. This is how I explain. Sickle cell disease have this vicious spiral. In other words, uh, the root cause is this mutation, and this mutation causes abnormal changes in the content of red blood cells. And that change causes injury to red blood cell, and that causes uh, inflammation, and the inflammation in the form of something called oxidation. And uh, this oxidation further damages the red cell, and then uh, it causes further deformation. That's the vicious spiral. I just tried to explain vicious spiral, which you already know. Right. right. And right. we wanted to stop vicious spiral at some point, and actually there are many targets we decided to target this, uh, what we call oxidation. Oxidation is a form of inflammation, and uh, by doing so, try to limit or slow down or even stop this uh, vicious spiral. So that's kind of like a long-winded version. Uh, if you want to make it even simpler, explaining to patient, um, this uh, endary really reduces oxidation of red blood cells caused by the uh, root cause. So right. and in case of sickle cell, there's too much of this uh, oxidation process, and we are reducing this by, uh, um, so like a, we are reducing uh, this um, uh, oxidation or inflammation by uh, activating uh, body's own system of uh, antioxidants. Wonderful, wonderful. That, uh, that, that's a really nice explanation. Um, well, Dr. Nihara, I, I really once again want to thank you for your time today. And uh, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be in uh, a disease space where dedicated individuals like yourself are working hard to uh, better uh, the state for sickle cell disease patients. And yeah, thanks for sticking with it and, and getting us our first new sickle cell drug in 20 years so we have something we can treat people with. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Dr. Zaidi and Dr. Callahan, and uh, thank you for the work that you do. Okay, we will uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Dr. Mike, I, uh, I appreciate you so much for breaking down these seminal trials in our uh, red cell research reviews that we've been doing on cheat codes. You know, you have a, a really nice way of taking really complicated things and making them interesting and tangible. So so I appreciate having you. Um, I, I learn a lot during these segments. I, I do too. <laughs> um, so the, the, for this episode, we're gonna focus on Andari and the phase uh, three trial. 
That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Earlier in this episode, we spoke with Dr. Nihara, who is the CEO, inventor, founder, however you want to put it, of um, L-glutamine and its use in sickle cell disease. Um, And and we're just going to dive in a little bit more um, with Dr. Mike as our Sherpa sort of uh, guiding us um, and, and, and get into the meat of why the FDA said that this drug was okay to use in sickle cell disease patients. Dr. Mike, can you, can you help us out? Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, so th- this is a study, again, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think uh, th- our last six episodes have been things published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We'll have to branch out a little bit, maybe. This is a phase three trial of L-glutamine, or now it's called Endari, in sickle cell disease. And um, Dr. Nahara, who we spoke with earlier, That's right. uh, was the first author. This was published in New England Journal in July 2018, so it's re- relatively recent. And th- this looked at um, L-glutamine in a multi-center, so again, lots of different hospitals, randomized. People either got the placebo or they got the L-glutamine and double-blind, so they didn't know and their doctor didn't know which one they were getting. And phase three trial, so again, this is a big trial attempting to uh, really prove that this drug is effective. And they used a dose of 0.3 grams per kilogram of body weight um, given twice a day or a placebo. They did this over a period of 48 weeks, and their primary endpoint was, again, to look at pain. J- just to take a step back, um, I-, I think Dr. Nahara uh, did a really good job of summarizing this earlier, so I'll, I'll be brief. L-glutamine is an amino acid. It's ubiquitous, meaning it's it's everywhere, and we, we need more of it than we have during times of stress. Um, so w- when cells are stressed or when our body ex- is exposed to um, an oxidative stress, um, as is often the case for our sickle cell warriors who are having pain episodes or, or um, occlusive events, there's not enough glutamine around to make the things to fight off that stress, that antioxidants, that NADH, that sure. fuel to make sure. that to help. So, so that was the idea yeah. about why it might work. Dr. Um, Mike, would it be reasonable to to say that L-glutamine is like, the way that I sort of think about it is like we have materials that our body needs to build and L-glutamine is like a Lego, right? It's like a brick or, or a Lego that is used to build that material. Yeah, I like that. It's, you know, it's uh, an amino acid. And so our body's made mostly of proteins and uh, the proteins are, are basically a combination of 20 amino acids. So yeah. those are like, you know, the little Different Lego color pieces. Legos. Yeah, okay. It's like that Lego movie where the guy's building on the, on the it's fly. It's a great movie, honestly. It's very funny. It really is. Um, I think another thing I should say about glutamine is it's also made into another amino acid called arginine. And arginine is really important for making something called nitric oxide. That's that, a big deal. That, uh, helps our blood vessels keep things from sticking to them and stay loose. And the balance of nitric oxide and sickle cell disease is wacky. For sure. Uh, you, you have that free hemoglobin that, that uh, scavenges it and, and causes damage, and it's not delivered as well by the red blood cells. Right. So that's another way this, this drug might work. With that idea in this study design, they enrolled patients who were at least five years old um, a total of 230 patients up to 58 years old, and they were randomized two to one. So, uh, what does that mean? So, 
they flipped a coin, but the coin had three sides, I guess. I don't know how you, how you do that. <laughs> but uh, two out of every three people who got randomized got the glutamine and one got the placebo. Okay. So mo- most of the people on the study got the glutamine. Um, they, they measured the average number of pain episodes over that 48-week period. And in the L-glutamine group, um, it was three pain episodes. Okay. And in the placebo group, it was four pain episodes. Okay. So about a, a third fewer pain episodes. And they also looked at the time to, to the, have your first yeah, pain sure. episode. And um, that was also different. Improved. Um, it yeah. was improved in the in the L-glutamine group compared to the placebo. And I, I also think that they had some, if I'm not mistaken, some hospitalization data too that showed that there were maybe less hospitalizations when you're on Endari. That's right. And less time in the hospital. And less acute chest even. Exactly. So they were able to show, you know, an improvement in a lot of a lot of clinical endpoints. And again, in this trial, you could be on hydroxyurea if you had been on a steady dose. Um, and about two thirds of the patients were on hydroxyurea. And the benefits that were seen were seen in the people on hydroxyurea, um, as well as the people who were not on hydroxyurea. Um, they had people who had anywhere from zero to 10 pain episodes um, with about 80% in the two to five range. The, again, across across all of those demographics, they had benefit. They also had patients with uh, sickle cell SS, S-beta zero, and S-beta plus in the trial. So it's, it's approved for all of the different uh, types of, of sickle cell. So, so this led to our first sickle cell drug approval in 20 years um, of, the, of the three drugs we've talked about recently. This was the the first one to market. It's amazing. Um, really a landmark. I mean, just a huge, huge thing. To have that, a new drug in sickle cell after really, all that time. Yeah. And uh, it comes as uh, something like sugar packet, yeah. um, a powder that you can mix in juice or applesauce or yogurt and um, have with breakfast and dinner because you have to take it twice a day and it, it's a medicine you take continuously to prevent yeah so uh, you know w- one interesting thing is that this is so out of the three new medications this is one that we can start in our younger patients um, you know this one is approved from age five upwards right so um, oxbrita is 12 and up and Adacfio is 16 and up. Um, so for that group of patients who are 5 to 12, we have hydroxyurea and we have Andari. And, um, you know, I think that, again, we reference our friend and colleague, Dr. Katerina Minitti. She wrote the editorial in, in the, the same um, issue of New England Journal of Medicine um, about Andari. Its title is Alglutamine and the Dawn of Combination Therapy for Sickle Cell Disease. And that's so true. Uh, But it leaves us with so many compelling questions now. Right now when we have patients that have access potentially to four drugs, how do we combine them? Do we combine them? Which patients get combination therapy? How do we monitor combination therapy? What is the safety of combination therapy? There's all these very interesting and compelling points that I think are going to become really important now. Um, and my my excitement and fear, we only have one shot to do this, you know, and, and I really hope that, that we as a community, as a provider community, make sure that we set ourselves up to really um, rigorously analyze 
and um, follow cohorts that are getting treated with with multiple therapies now. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, and it's a, it's an exciting time. I, I think um, we're starting to have some tools that can help with sickle cell disease. Um, and, and I think, you know, I really liked the title of Dr. Minetti's editorial there, the, the dawn of combination therapy. And I think it harkens back to, you know, the, the 60s and 70s uh, when our, when our um, colleagues who treat leukemia Certainly. started to have drugs and they had methotrexate and they had 6MP and they had steroids and they had asparaginase right. and they, they still use those drugs but they figured out how to use them right. And they went from 0% cures to, you know, 80, 90% right. cures exactly. by just using those same drugs in the right combinations and the right ways at the right doses at the right times. That's right. And they did that by cooperating, by forming big groups, by um, collecting meticulous data and, and, and following outcomes over long periods of time. And I, I think it's our duty to do that here. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. I think that that's, very well said. Thank you so much for going through um, the data of uh, the phase three trial for L-glutamine. Um, there you have it, folks, straight from the expert's mouth. Dr. Mike, thank you again. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up another successful episode. That was great. It was great to talk to Dr. Nihara. Yeah, we had some star power on the show. That was kind of neat. I hope you guys will share this podcast with people who you think could benefit from learning a little bit more about sickle cell disease, which really is everyone. Follow us on Twitter at Imagineer and at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And look out for Dr. Z's TikToks. <laughs> they're coming. At some point, they're coming. I promise you that. All right, guys, stay with it, stay healthy, be well with sickle cell, and we will catch you next time.